please give your attention to Jude. Jude is a short book whose theme is to contend for the gospel of grace. In light, we're able to contend and fight for a life of holiness in light of our great contender, aren't we? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was able to conquer sin and death for us so that with new identities, not to earn the identities, but with new identities, we are able to go and leave and lead the kind of life that God calls us to be. Twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of... And here we are today at the, the pinnacle, the nadir of Jude. We're in the heart of it. Woe to them. And Lord, would you take our hearts this morning and would you help us to not only point fingers at others to whom we would like to call down curses, but would you oh so gently turn our fingers toward ourselves and to ask ourselves if we are the recipients of this woe. Make us, Lord, people who are able to respond to your gracious and nurture correct, uh, generous correction in our life. Open our hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Jude is a book that is written with one very simple message. And it is that grace forgives disobedience, but it does not produce disobedience, nor is it a free pass to disobey. Grace always forgives disobedience, but it is not. It does not produce disobedience, nor is grace a free pass to disobey. And in the book of Jude, this tiny letter of Jude, you have a group of people who have slipped in in the church. She, they are wolves among sheep who are beginning to devour the flock by teaching that it does not matter what you do because you're saved by grace. And so they were sexually immoral. They were, as we'll see today, they had uh, desires and appetites for material gain. And they were causing schism in the church. And Jude writes this letter. And as he writes this letter, he orchestrates the whole letter in such a way to get to verse 11. And if you would, in your handout, if you look at the back of your, of your notes, you see this funny-looking triangle that is written uh, there with letters next to it. And um, this is what's called a chiastic structure in Scripture. There are many of them in Scripture, but Jude is particularly symmetrical, and it's interesting to look at. Notice that the theme that Jude presents in verse 1 about being kept in Jesus Christ is the same that he ends on down in verse 24. You see A and then A prime down at the bottom. And then in verse 2, B, mercy to you, in verse 22 and 23, B prime, he closes the letter out with the same theme. And notice where the letter grows to a crescendo. In verse 11, woe to you. And so in this time of Jude, this point of Jude, we are going as into the depths of the cave. And if you've ever gone into a cave, children, you know that when you're in the outside, like in robber's cave, you know, you, there's enough light in robber's cave that you don't ever have to really use, a, really use a flashlight if you're there in the middle of the day. But if you go into a cave that's so deep, eventually there are no more shadows cast against the walls. And you stand at the very mouth, the depths of the cave, far from the mouth of the cave. And what do you have? Pitch blackness. You can't see anything. 
And here in Jude, it's as though he takes you into the pitch blackness where he leaves you with nothing but for you to rummage and to feel around the walls and to hear in the midst of the pitch blackness the woe of the holiness of God coming down to say, who are you in light of who I've made you? And Jude zeroes in on this woe and he uses three men in the Old Testament as examples of the covenant curses of the Lord upon them. And so let's look at what this woe means and then let's look at these three examples, shall we? This, this passage reminds me, if you've read The Hobbit, it reminds me of that passage in The Hobbit where it says, you know, far over the misty mountains cold where dungeons deep and caverns old we must away ere break of day and find our long forgotten gold. Into the depths of the mines of Mordor we go. Into the depths of Jude. Into the pitch blackness of Jude. There's gold here. Would you please pray as I preach that the Lord would give you eyes to see it. First, what is a woe in Scripture? I, I, I beg you, would you please work that English word into your vocabulary at the office this week? W-O-E. Just not like, whoa, hold your horses. Like, whoa, like try to work that in. Nobody uses that word anymore. But it's a rich and deep biblical word. And the word woe is, uh, it means a curse. It means, it's the language of the Old Testament prophets. It is a curse of doom. And when you hear that, you think back to Isaiah and to Jeremiah and to the prophets, Ezekiel, cursing foreign powers or cursing Israel themselves about their disobedience in the Lord. And in the New Testament, you see Jesus himself use it. In Matthew 23, Jesus used this, this word woe seven times. And let me ask you a question, um, Christians, church, does he use it toward the lost, to those who are outside of the church, or does Jesus use this woe seven times to those who were religious in his day? The religious. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 23, verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself, you blind fools. And as Jude pulls us into the heart of his book, into the pitch blackness of the woe, would you ask yourself, Lord, am I blind? Am I a blind fool? Am I a hypocrite in my heart? Would you ask Jesus to be so gentle with you as he helps you to see the gospel? Jude wants us to know that in this passage, these people that are in the church that Jude is writing to, they are not sheep. They are wolves in sheep clothing, and they are leading you astray. And he gives three examples. He gives the example of Cain, the example of Balaam, and the example of Korah. These three men, do you see it in verse 11? These three men are examples of a fierce kind of self-righteousness that cripples the church. Let's look at them together. First, Cain. 
Cain was a murderer. You know the story, don't you, in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was a murderer who murdered whom? His brother, his brother Abel. Remember, they brought sacrifices to the Lord, and the Lord accepted Abel's sacrifice, but, the, but Cain's sacrifice the Lord did not accept. And Cain murdered his brother because of envy and rivalry. But do you know that through the years and down through the uh, centuries after the story was written, the Jews actually believed that murder wasn't Cain's worst problem. That beneath the murder was Cain's anger and envy. And beneath the anger and envy was a fierce sense of pride. And beneath that pride, the Jewish rabbis would write in the Targums, was a kind of cynicism for which he became the example par excellence to the world of this negative way of thinking. A decade before uh, Jude was written, Philo uh, talks about Cain's rationale. And in the Targums, which is a, Greek, uh, it's a paraphrase of the Old Testament that Jews would be familiar with, Cain writes, uh, this is what's written of Cain. He's thinking out why he murdered his brother. And Cain says, there is no judgment There is no justice. There is no future life. There is no good reward to be given for the righteous, nor will the judgment be inflicted upon the wicked. So why not kill my brother? Cain doubted God's goodness, and he distrusted his brothers. And the Jewish rabbis through the centuries taught that Cain became the instructor of wickedness, the first one. And the corruption of the race, they would say, began with the cynical attitude of Cain. Are you cynical? Are you distrusting of other people? Where in your life are you particularly critical of others? Where in your life do you find yourself um, criticizing others? In what situation in life do you bend toward pessimism because you don't trust other people's motives? That's what the heart of a cynic is. Cynicism is one who does not trust the motives of other people. And while we can say there's a fine line between discernment and cynicism, can't we? At some point, that cynicism bleeds over into sin, or that discernment bleeds over into sin, and that sin we call cynicism. Cynicism is a word that we got from Antisthenes, which is an old uh, student of Socrates many, many years ago, who taught that you should turn away from the norms of society. You should distrust the norms that have been set up for us because they are done so in a self-gratifying way by the elite. Do not trust them. And so Antisthenes and a whole group of men who followed his philosophy began to live in the streets. And Diogenes, who came later, who is the, the most famous of the cynics, they called a kainos, a dog, because this group of people who were cynical of all the norms of society distrusted everybody. They lived in the streets. They would often walk around with very little clothing on. They did everything in the streets, and they called them street dogs, kainos. And kainics, cynics, was the word that began to characterize their attitude. And one modern author has written this about cynicism. The genius of cynicism is that it is a voice in your ear that does not usually hang around long enough to be interviewed. It usually expresses itself in innuendos, 
and passing remarks and moods and cartoons and hints and insinuations and unacknowledged assumptions and sneers and in jokes. Cynicism, friends, does not just belong to Cain, but it belongs to you and me. Because there's something good called discernment where you're able to make right choices that then gets bent into an over-desire and becomes cynicism. If Jesus were to sit here with you today and he were to call you out for where you have been sinfully distrusting of other people, in what area of your life do you think he would mention? Where would he call you to account? Where would he say that you're not being discerning, you're being cynical? And notice that it was the cynicism of Cain about God's goodness and his fairness that caused him to give way to his pride, which caused him to give way to his envy, which caused him to give way to his rage and his anger, and he slew his brother. Murder wasn't his problem. Yes, it was a problem. It was a problem, of course. But beneath the murder was envy, and beneath the envy was pride, and beneath the pride was a cynicism that doubted God's goodness. Are you cynical? John Newton says that everything is necessary that God sends our way, and nothing can be necessary in your life that he withholds. What do you think is necessary for you that God has not given you, and you become cynical about it? Your Savior knows the situation in which you live. He has you right where he wants you. Do you trust him that he's good? C.S. Lewis says that you can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something as a window is to see something through it. And to see through everything is the same thing as not to see at all. In the heart of darkness, in the cave of Jude, where he cries out, woe to them. Are you Cain? Are you cynical? And has that cynicism led you outside the bounds of God's desire for us in holiness into sin? First, Jude warns us about cynical Cain. Second, Balaam, the greedy. We all know the story of Balaam. Many of us do. You know, the story of Balaam is that you have a king, Balak, who's the king of the Moabites, and Balak has a problem He's entering into a world where there's a far greater market share of the land and of the resources in his uh, area because they're taken up by a very, very fast-growing group of people named the Israelites who have come out of Egypt, settled in the uh, wilderness, and now are taking over the land. And Balak does what any good corporate CEO these days would do. He hires a consultant. He goes and he finds the best consultant he can find, and he finds Balaam, the son of Peor. And Balaam is doing this. He's a wandering prophet who's paid to prophesy for people who hire him. He's a for-hire prophet. And Balaam, greedy for gain, takes the job. And you know the story. He, he's going to Balak. Remember, he's going to meet Balak. And he's on a donkey. And an angel of the Lord appears on the road. And the donkey can see this angel of the Lord, but Balaam can't see him. And the donkey veers off the road. And Balaam kicks the donkey to get back onto the road. And then the angel Lord appears by a vineyard in this field where the donkey has taken him. And the donkey sees this angel in the vineyard and he, he moves over out of the way against a wall and he crushes Balaam's foot and Balaam hits the donkey again. 
Remember, and the, the donkey then continues on, and then they get to this very narrow spot of the road where he can't get across. Balaam's on this donkey going to report for duty. He wants his paycheck. He wants to get paid to prophesy. And Balaam, again, is on this donkey. And what does the donkey do? And he sees the angel of the Lord at an impasse where the donkey can't pass to the right or the left. What does the donkey do? He lays down. And Balaam has had it. And he gets off the donkey and he kicks the donkey. And he says, what are you doing? And the donkey looks up at Balaam and he says, what are you doing? (laughs) And he speaks. And Balaam is like, oh my gosh, the mushrooms I ate this morning or something. What is going on? And he's, he's seen this donkey talk to him. And the donkey says, I've been faithful to you all these years. Don't you think I would do this if I had a good reason? Of course I would. And then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel of the Lord. And the angel tells Balaam, I want you to go to Balak and I want you to say you'll take the job, but you're not going to curse Israel. You're going to bless Israel. And I know it may mean job insecurity for you perhaps, but it is what I want you to do. And so Balaam goes and he does what the Lord calls him to do. You know the story, but the subtext of that very famous story that we all know, the subtext of Balaam's story is that Balaam was a man who was hungry for material gain. And the whole reason he was even in that story is because he was the prophet who would prophesy when, everybody, when anybody would pay him money to prophesy. And, and we know this because um, the Bible tells us this. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it says in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. These people that, to whom Peter is writing. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Jude here is saying there are Balaams in your midst. There are people who are not only cynical, but guys, they are hungry for money. They're greedy people. And the hard thing about greed in the church is that it is so, what's the word? Subtle and common, perhaps. The role of the church and the leadership of the church is to help the church grow in purity through its existence. And we are to do that when there is visible and known sin. And when you when you're greedy, you don't really know if you're being greedy, do you? I mean, it's when you're committing adultery, it's not hard to oh, you're not my wife. I mean, of course you know when you've committed adultery. It's visible and you know it. But when you're greedy, it's like a bacillus that gets into your bloodstream and you don't even know it until you find yourself bedridden and sick. Greed is a very difficult thing to detect in our hearts. But Jesus had far more to say about greed than he did many other subjects. Are you greedy? Are you able to take what the Lord has provided for you and to tithe that money to the church? Or do you just tip Trinity to get the Bible off your back? Are you able to work for a fair wage? Or do you underpay your employees so that you can maximize your paycheck? 
when times are thin. How do you define when times are really thin? When you can't pay your cell phone bill? When your son or daughter doesn't get a wee? When you can't take that vacation? How do you define when things are really thin for you? And when they are thin, what in your budget gets cut? Do you talk about those things together as a couple? Where does money master you? Where does it own you? Are you greedy? Friends, we have to be talking about this together because one of the greatest gifts the Lord has given to us is one of the things that we secretly really resent, and that is the Lord asking us to give to his church. One of the greatest antidotes to greed is being able to be generous. And in the Old Testament, it was a tenth of your money. And in the New Testament, surely it should be at least that, right? To give joyfully and generously and sacrificially and regularly. That is not something the Lord gives you because he's trying to punish you. It's, he gives it to you as a gift because you take prescriptions for your depression. He's given you a prescription for your greed. Are you faithful to that? This week, I was, uh, not this week, earlier this month, I had to take my car into the shop because I need my car. It's a good car, and I want to keep her running for a long time. And, and I paid a ton of money to this shop. To me, it was a lot of money. And I sat there, and I wrote out the check, and I gave it to him. And I thought to myself, man, there's a lot of things I'd rather spend this money on. And Jesus just reminded me, he just said, you know what, Blake? That's my money. And if I want to spend it that way, that's my business. Write the check. And so I handed the check over. And I had even at that point in time to repent of my own greed and selfishness to think, man, I just want to get these guys to reduce it. I want to play the pastor card, and I want to play every card I can to get this price down. But the Lord just said, just shut up. Just write the check. It's my money anyway, and I made you a steward of it. Do you have that perspective of finances? I don't hold myself up as the example. I hold myself up as the way not to act because I did not want to pay him. I was greedy in my heart. Are you aware of your greed too? Cain the cynic, Balaam the greedy, and then Jude hones in on Korah the schismatic. Remember the story of Korah back in Numbers 16. Korah rose up against Moses and Aaron. They're in the wilderness. And Korah and his men are Levites. And they say, we're going to start our own church, Moses. Aaron, we don't like the way you treat us, asking us to do all these laws and commands and obey these rules and be in bed at a certain time. Ugh. Look what we get for it. I mean, we're in the wilderness. People smell. We have to move all the time. We have to set up for worship. I mean, we want a building. We want out of here. And notice what, what Moses did. He heard this complaint from Korah. And notice the first thing that he did. Moses didn't bow up to Korah and say, Who do you think you are? I'm the chosen one of the Lord. Now, Moses in his heart was the same young man the, 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 the stutterer, the stammerer that he was when God called him with all of his insecurities. And what does Moses do? Moses, the text says in number 16, he falls on his face in prayer. 
And he says, Lord, I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And I love that part where Moses says that because that is exactly what the elders of this church do. Because beneath their eldership and beneath the role that we are to serve at this church, we are just broken sinners. Men who stutter and stammer and struggle with sin just like you do. And so we throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and say, we don't know what to do. We've got people who are running from their spouses and people who are making decisions that are ruining their life. And you've called us to shepherd their church and we don't know what to do. Help us. And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, I want you to do this. I want you to tell them to get censers and tongs of fire. And I want you to get all of your men. And I want you to meet me at the temple tomorrow. And the Lord meets them the next day. And he says, I will show you who is the real head of this little community called Israel. And my commands. We're all awake. It'll happen again in five minutes, by the way, and this will hopefully be the last Sunday we get to have to change classes in the middle of worship. And the Lord says to Moses, Moses, I will show you who's mine, and my commands of holiness are not meant, they're not meant to be begrudging for you. They're meant to be freedom for you. And as soon as the Lord ends his speech, his soliloquy, what happens? The ground opens up, and all of Korah and their family, except for Korah's sons, we know later in Scripture, were received by the earth. And friends, Jude is saying to us as clearly as he can in verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, the cynic, and abandoned themselves like Balaam for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And they perished in their schismatic attitudes in the rebellion of Korah. Are you cynical? Are you greedy? Are you schismatic? Are we able to disagree with each other in a way that brings us together around God's word and helps us to look at God's word as the ultimate authority, not our opinions about what color the carpet should be, the authority of God's word, and to say, let's go to scripture and see what scripture has to say here. Are we able to be a church that does that, has such a high view of scripture that says, I don't know if I can trust my feelings or my emotions or my experiences or my, my sense of what's right in this situation. I'm going to go to scripture. And can we argue about it around God's word? Can we do that together? That's what the Lord calls us to do and to be as his people. In Numbers uh, 26, it says that Korah was to be a warning for us, the people of God. For when the company of Korah contended against the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, Numbers 26, 10 chapters later, they reflect back on this story. And when that company died, when the fire devoured the 250 men, they became for us a warning. And the warning is this, that we in our hearts, we will run towards cynicism because it makes us feel really good because it is unable to be confronted. And we will run toward greed because it is a really easy way for us to have a quick fix Nobody knows how much money we make. We can spend it however we want. Who will know that we don't give to the church? We'll just tip them, get the Bible off our backs. And we're schismatic. We don't trust our parents. We don't trust what the church says. We know it's right. Do you? The way the Lord describes these people is he describes them in verse, uh, the results or the consequences in verse 12. He says, they are hidden reefs 
at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, their shepherds feeding themselves. In other words, there are hidden reefs, friends. There are unforeseen circumstances with those attitudes. They will make you inwardly selfish. You feel like you're growing, but you're like an oak tree that's being bent ever so slowly and surely over time so that you're growing into the earth instead of growing toward the sunlight. You're growing with a bent back. There are unforeseen circumstances of those attitudes. And then secondly, he says what? He says they're like waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late summer, he then goes on. Twice dead. What do these images mean? What do waterless clouds mean to people who live in the desert? To see clouds billowing over the horizon, right? These amazing thunderheads coming towards you. And when they get over you, what happens? No water that you so long for. That's what it's like to have this kind of attitude. You think it promises rain, but the Bible tells you it doesn't. It only dashes your hope. Your greed, you will never have enough money. You will never be able to be satisfied in your distrust of other people. There will always be somebody else to distrust. You will never be able to have things just like you want because you're left with yourself. How schismatic do you want to be? Hell is a place where schism happens to the party of one for all eternity. And you've left only to yourself. That is what hell is in the midst of God's wrath and judgment forever. Waterless clouds dashing your hopes. Fruitless trees, it then says. The third image is of something that is dead. Fruitless trees in late autumn. Perhaps there were trees in the ancient Near East that would blossom in autumn, but they didn't blossom. We might read it, fruitless trees in the spring. They, they didn't blossom. We had all this investment we'd made over the years into this pattern of living, thinking that it would blossom for us, and it hasn't. We're twice dead. We've rejected God's word. There it is. Thank you, right? We've rejected God's word, and also what we thought it promised us, it doesn't. We're twice dead. And then lastly, we're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of our own shame, of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We're not only dead in our works, but we're spiritually dead. We still haven't found what we're looking for, thanks to to Bono. And everybody's still looking for something, as the arrhythmics say, and we still can't get no satisfaction as the stones once wrote were wild waves cast upon the shore, bringing to the beach foam, which nobody wants when you're at the beach, froth. Are you cynical? Are you greedy? Are you schismatic? And the only way to be healed of these things is to see the great virtues of Scripture given to us. The only antidote to cynicism is love to push back against your distrust of other people and to lean into love. For the greatest person in the world was the one who had the right to be cynical in every way, distrusting of every person. And Jesus in his love came into us and resisted the temptation of cynicism in a world where he had a right to it. He knew our hearts and he lived among us. He became the dog of the streets. He became the one that we abused. He became the one that we put up on the cross so that Jesus might say, please, in your cynicism and in your running from Scripture, please, would you hear me? I'm trying to tell you this in love. I will put my body on the cross to show you a sign of it. Love is the antidote to cynicism. I have accomplished for you what your cynicism never could. 
I have given you life indeed if you'll trust in me. Jesus was the one who came when he had everything. He had the treasures of heaven at the Father's right hand and he gave the treasure of heaven up so that he might become poor. And so in his poverty, we might become, what does Paul say? Rich in his righteousness so that Jesus could become the poor one so that we could become wealthy in him. Are you letting your identity in him as the wealth of God, as the one who has been called his daughter and his son, mark the way that you use money so that you're not greedy for gain when you're tempted to do so? And then Jesus is the one certainly who could have been schismatic. In the garden, he could have said, this thing is done. I'm taking my ball and my life and my cross and I'm going home, Father. But he didn't. Jesus himself submitted to his Father's will. Isn't that amazing? He submitted to his Father's will so much so that he could teach all of the schismatics in us, all the, schismis, the schismatic natures of our heart. And he could say, oh, trust the Father. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And then he took the way of the cross. Jesus is the perfect picture of love. Jesus is the perfect picture of faith. Jesus himself is the perfect picture of hope. Darkness must pass, and a new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. Let us rummage in the dark, friends, this morning, without the supper, for we don't have it because of baptism, the joys of baptism. Let us rummage in the dark this week to ask ourselves, are we schismatic? Are we people who are greedy? And are we people who are cynical at heart? And would you see your Savior, the one who is there for you, who with love, faith, and hope was able to help you grow past your cynicism into real biblical, honest discernment, to grow past your greed into generosity and joy, and to grow past your desire to break away, to get your own way, to say, I will submit myself to the church that you have placed me in with joy and with gladness, for you set the boundaries of my habitations, and you do so because everything you give me is for my good. Come to Christ and believe in the midst of the darkness. Rummage in the dark together. And let us walk in the light of the countenance of his grace, even when we cannot see a thing. Let his word light our way forward. Hallelujah. The good news of the gospel that Jesus has come to us to be for us what we could never be for ourselves, and to help us deal with the recesses of our hearts out of which sin so quickly spews. The perfect one for us, his righteousness in our place. See him, savor him, love him, Run to him in repentance even this morning as I pray. Father, would you take our hearts and would you again mold them into the shape of the cross? Would you help us to hear your clarion call of woe to those who lead your people away by cynicism like Cain or greed like Balaam or who are schismatics like Korah who break away when they want things done their own way. Lord, would you protect us from Cain's fate? Would you protect us from Balaam's fate? Would you protect us, Father, from what happened to Korah? For we know that you are the one who controls everything. There is nothing outside of your control. It is not fate. It is your sovereign will and command. And you love, Lord, to give us good gifts. Would you help us to be the people you've called us to be in joy? 
We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.